invest in them and help them to know and follow God's truth. While they're doing that, let me encourage you to turn your Bible to John chapter 19 this morning. John chapter 19 in the Bible. If you could, if you could answer a simple question, I wonder how you would answer this. If you were to be asked, like, what is the most important thing that has ever happened to you? The most important event in your life, the, the, the key moment that, that you think sort of defines who you are. The, the person that you are, what you've become, what, what would that be for you? Now, I know some of you already, you've turned to John 19 and you're kind of Jesus juking me because you see where we're going to be. And so you would say, well, it's Jesus, right? It's the cross of Jesus. And that is the answer, of course. That's the answer I'm after. Well done. Sit at the front of the class, those of you who, who guessed that, right? But I want you to think about your life for a moment because central to this morning's message and central to the passage of Scripture we're going to understand this morning is, is this key idea that Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. In fact, you can see normally on Sunday mornings there are notes that you can follow along with and ways that you can fill in the blanks and, and you don't have any of that this morning. There is one point, there is one central theme, one central point to this morning's message, and it's relatively straightforward. Jesus gave his life to redeem you from sin. And so this morning's message has everything to do with, with you. Yes, these are real events that happened to Jesus. Yes, these are real events that took place in a real historical place and time to a real man who was both fully God and fully man named Jesus. And yet, this morning, especially as we look at John chapter 19 and what John is teaching us here, we must understand that the reason John writes to tell these events is so that we may know and that we may believe. In fact, I'm not just guessing John tells us as much. So it's not on the screens. It's not a part of our text. But if you found John chapter 19, go one chapter over to John chapter 20 and then scan ahead and find the very last verse of John chapter 20. And look at what John says. This is in John chapter 20, verse 31. I'll back up and read verse 30, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, John tells us that what all of this comes down to is not just relating matters of history. It's not just telling a story. It's not just trying to convince us of an argument. But he's telling us these things so that we may believe and that by believing we may have life. That's one of the key themes in, in, in John's gospel is that, that we have life through believing in Jesus. You can read the gospel of John and that turns up again and again. So in John chapter 19 this morning, we're going to read the events of Jesus' crucifixion. That that singular event that, that becomes such an important, such a defining event in all of history. 
Now, I would dare say that of all the things that have happened to you in your lifetime, whatever you might define as being the most important, the most consequential, you would probably recognize, and again, I'm not talking about this, okay, but of the events of your life, your own personal story, your own personal history, your autobiography, if you will. You would probably say that the, the defining event of my life or the defining things in my life are, are really unique and personal to me. But I don't know how much that impacts all of human history throughout all time, right? And yet, these events do impact all of human history throughout all time. All peoples who have lived ever. What Jesus did on the cross matters. It matters so much. And I want us to come to the text this morning with that important truth in mind. It's been said before that if what, if, if what Jesus said that he would do and then in fact did, if, if these events are true, then nothing else matters. If these events aren't true, then none of this matters. But if these events are true, then nothing else matters matters. And actually, the Apostle Paul writes something really similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can look that up. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if, if the events of the cross are true, then, then, then it matters more than anything else. He says if the events of the cross are not true, then we ought to be pitied more than anyone else because we've gone all in on a lie. But because these events are true, he sort of goes on to say, then this matters. This bears eternal consequence, and I think that will be true as we study John chapter 19 this morning. And so I'm going to read through John 19, and you've probably looked ahead already. I I said a similar thing uh, last week when we read a lot of text, but there are 42 verses to John 19. 42 verses. That's a lot of text. A lot of times when I when I preach a message, I, I focus in on a much smaller section of the Scripture. But this morning, in order that we, that we see these events in the context that is presented to us in the Scripture, and because these events matter so, so, so much for us, I want to read them and read the story as John, an eyewitness to these things, relates them to us in his Gospel. So let's read together. We're in John chapter 19, and this begins prior to Jesus' crucifixion with the events of his trial, his conviction, which was, we understand, a a sham of sorts, but a kangaroo court sometimes is the phrase we'll use for something like this, right? But it it was a false conviction, and yet ultimately these are the events that led to his arrest. We know that it was the will of the Father that Jesus should be crucified. And it was because of his crucifixion, his offering of his life for us, that our sins can be forgiven. The price has been paid. So we read in John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation of the Pentecost, It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts. One part for each shoulder, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. But cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And since it was the day of preparation, 
And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, in another scripture, it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so we find in John 19 the story of the death of Jesus. Now, much like the song that we sang earlier, we, the, the song Death Was Arrested, there's, there's a part in that song where uh, there's some, some dynamics, some movement, right? Uh, we, we sing, Savior displayed on a criminal's cross and darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And then the song begins to build. You feel it with the drums and the rhythm and the song reaches that point of crescendo and we sing, but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand and death was arrested and my life began. Well, much like that, we know that there is, there is a crescendo to come, a matter of, of some hours, a few days from the moments here in John 19. But let us consider together these events in John 19 that we might fully understand, fully appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus in order that, just as John tells us, in order that we might believe and through our belief, we might find eternal life. And so at the beginning of John 19, we see that Jesus is on trial. Essentially, he is, he is being, being uh, paraded about He's been flogged, he's been beaten, he's been mocked. He's all of these things in order that, that the Jews might bring about these charges desiring ultimately his crucifixion. Now, if you know much about crucifixion, if you've heard sermons about crucifixion, if you've read about the crucifixion, if you've watched any number of movies like uh, like the movie Jesus, right, the, or, or the Jesus film, or uh, the, there's The Chosen, there's all these different versions, and you probably have some visual idea in your mind's eye of what crucifixion would have been like. But crucifixion was a torturous form of death 
devised by the Romans, or at least we should say perfected by the Romans. The Romans were not the first to crucify. This manner, this method, the way that they would use it, they were sort of pioneers in, in this regard. But certainly they were not the first to, to crucify uh, those who had committed crimes or those that they, of whom they just desired to make uh, an, an, an example, a public witness through this grotesque form of uh, of death and punishment, and yet in the, in the Roman system of things, someone could be crucified if they were guilty of the highest form of treason or high crimes. And so there are, there are lots of examples throughout history of where the Romans would, uh, would, would crucify their, their enemies. They would crucify those that they considered to be traitors, or they would crucify those whom they wanted to publicly make an example of. And in this particular situation, we understand that there was, there was a crucifixion that had already been arranged for this day, because there are two other prisoners. But now, knowing that this was an opportune moment, the religious leaders of the Jews have invented these crimes against Jesus. They have, they have fabricated this, uh, th- these, these accusations that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, which was, in effect, the highest sort of rebellion against Roman occupation, against Caesar, and against the, the, uh, the conquering or the occupying Roman forces, of whom Pilate was the governor, the leader of this region. And so, Jesus appears before Pilate. Pilate sees no offense in him. John makes clear to us that matter of detail. And yet, because of the pressure from the Jews, ultimately, Pilate gives Jesus over to the Jews in order that he might be crucified. Now, to be clear, it wasn't the Jews who did the actual act of crucifixion. They were not the ones who physically nailed Jesus to the cross. It was the Roman soldiers. It was a Roman form of punishment. And yet it was because of the, the, the extreme pressure brought against these religious leaders who saw Jesus' own claims as not only as blasphemy, as treason, but they saw it as the highest form of offense And so Jesus was crucified. Now, what we know to be true is that all of this took place because it was ordained of God. And there are a couple of different times, in fact, in John chapter 19, that John tells us that these things happen in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Why does John tell us that these things happen in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled? Well, he's, he's wanting to be certain that we understand that this did not come about because of some weakness on the, on, on the part of Jesus or some weakness on the part of God as though God were conquered. No, this came about because God willingly sacrificed himself, willingly laid down his life. It's in Isaiah chapter 53 that we see that it was the will of the Father to crush him. Now, Isaiah was prophesying of these things that would come, and yet those words ring true. Even here, we see in verse 36 and 37 that 
these things happen in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that those that will look on him whom they have pierced. Or in verse 24, these things happen that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And so Jesus, in accordance with what the scriptures prophesied, Jesus willingly gave his life. The crucifixion itself would have been pure torture. And I'm not going to try to somehow uh, uh, magnify the details, but if, if we just understand the mere facts themselves, it would have been a torturous form of punishment. Jesus would have been he would have been tethered to a cross, according to most forms of crucifixion. They were tethered to the cross. So they would have, been, they would have used lashings to tie them to a cross. But in Jesus' case, they drove nails into his hands and his feet. And I say hands. There's a lot of debate about where they would have driven the nails. In all likelihood, it would have been here at the base of his palm, just so that the mere weight of his body would not have ripped himself free once they hung him and, and, and raised his cross to a standing position. So they drove nails through his wrists, not piercing any bones again so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, but they drove nails through his wrists, nails through his feet. And Jesus was hung there naked to die. Now, at this point, he had already been severely beaten within just, just breaths from death. He had suffered 39 lashings at the hands of the Romans using a cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was a torturous weapon as well. Some of those details we don't have from John's gospel, but from the other gospels. But the cat of nine tails would have been a whip effectively with, with nine uh, or, or more different uh, leather lashings at the end of it to which would have been attached bits of, ro- of, of rock or bone or, 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 or glass or other sharp things and they would use that to whip and scourge their victim and with each strike those sharp objects would grab his flesh and tear away at his flesh. I mean just the most gruesome uh, horrendous form of, of torture and then even as they as they crucify or as they raise Jesus for this crucifixion, now having suffered brutally, having, having been beaten within just breaths of death, now he's hanging on a cross, hanging in such a way that he would be required to raise himself up to, to take each breath, weakened in his state, suffering as he was, required to raise himself as his lungs slowly filled with with fluid, thus effectively suffocating to death. And, and in fact, this is exactly what the Gospels tell us that has happened. So that when they came to Jesus, we see here, in order that they might break his legs, why would they break his legs? So that he would no longer be physically able to push himself up and take breaths. They found that he had already suffocated. So to make sure that he was in fact dead, they pierced his side with a spear. I mean, you can imagine just a, just a, 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 uh, a tormentous way to suffer and die. And yet Jesus willingly gave his life. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus suffer and die on the cross? Why would he allow himself to go through such 
torture, such pain and agony and suffering. Again, the Bible makes it clear that he gave his life in order that he might pay the price for your sin and for my sin. You see, this was God's plan that Jesus might suffer and die in order to pay the price for our sin. But praise God, the story doesn't end with Jesus' death. It doesn't end with his burial. Because we see next of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. As John 20 opens, it's the early hours of the morning, the day after the Hebrew Sabbath. So it would have been Sunday, the first day of the week. Their Sabbath would have been Saturday. And on the first day of the week, there were some who were amongst Jesus' closest friends and family who went to the, who went to the, uh, the, the tomb where he had been laid. Friends like family, I should say, really. Friends and family, I mentioned. Friends like family who went to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And they, they sought to take his body. And what they found was that the tomb was empty. They were going to take his body and, and they were going to prepare it for, for, for its ultimate resting, right? I mean, for its, for its final entombment, if you will. Because the, that which they had done on Friday, they did hurriedly because the Sabbath drew near and the Jews couldn't do these things on the Sabbath lest it be considered work and they would have violated the Sabbath. And on top of that, that was a high holy day because of the feast of Passover, which had also taken place. And so on this first day of the week, they went to the tomb of Jesus, but what they found is that it was empty. They encounter a man there in the garden, not knowing that this was, in fact, Jesus whom they spoke with. And they asked him, Sir, have you, where, have you, where have you taken him? If you've carried him away, would you please let us know? And Jesus said, Mary. And she turned, it says in verse 16 of chapter 20, and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so these events took place again in order that we might know with, with absolute certainty, with the utmost confidence, that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. Yes, he suffered and died a brutal death on the cross. But praise God, he rose victoriously from the grave, thus making a way for you and I to be forgiven and set free. And you see, that's the point. Jesus gave his life to redeem you from sin. To those who have nothing This news is everything. I wonder, has there ever been a time in your life when you have trusted in Jesus by surrendering your life to him? When you have accepted his death as substitutionary payment for your sin in order that you might be forgiven by God the Father, in order that you might be redeemed from your sin? that's never taken place in this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to Jesus in faith. What does it look like to respond to Jesus in faith? It means simply that you acknowledge 
his death as sufficient, as, as effectual, as payment for your sin. So by faith, you say, Jesus, I trust you for the forgiveness of my sin, and I submit my life to you. I confess you as Lord, as Savior of my life, and I want to live for you. The Bible makes it clear that everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Today, if you've never trusted Jesus, then I would urge you to confess him as Lord and Savior, to surrender your life to him in order that you might be forgiven and set free from your sin. The cross was a horrific means of punishment. And yet, by God's grace, it becomes the most beautiful symbol of his love for us. Why is it that the church, the early church, gravitated toward the sign of the cross, even the very sign similar to the cross that hangs on the wall behind me? Why was it that the early church chose the the, the picture of the cross, the emblem of the cross, this symbol of suffering and punishment as a sign for, for their faith, as a sign of their belief, it was because we recognize that the cross of Jesus is everything for those who have nothing. The cross of Jesus means everything. When we willingly empty ourselves and surrender our lives to him, today. Are you ready to receive Jesus by faith? In a moment, we're going to move into a time where we, where we sing a song and we stand together and we sing. We call it a time of invitation because in this moment, we want to invite you to respond in faith today. And if you've never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, then even as we sing, I would encourage you to come forward this morning. Our staff will be standing here at the front, and we would love nothing more than to, to be able to pray with you and offer counsel that you, might, that you might surrender your life to Jesus today, that you might say to him, Lord, I trust you. I ask that you would come in my heart, forgive me of my sin. Would you make me new, Jesus, as I trust in you? You can surrender your life to him today. You can receive by faith this eternal life that John writes about that is made available to those who believe in Jesus. Even as we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. How I need you. Every hour I need you. If you would be ready and willing to surrender your life to him, to receive him by faith, to confess your need, then we would encourage you that you would step out. So as we stand and sing in a moment when we do that, then you'll just Make your way into the aisle. Come to one of us here at the front. Let us visit with you. Let us pray with you. Let us counsel you through submitting your life to Jesus in faith this morning, receiving forgiveness and eternal life from the one who loved you and gave his life as payment for your sin. Would you bow your head with me? As we prepare for this moment of response, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer and I want to ask him to move. And I'm going to pray specifically even this morning that he would speak to our hearts through the work of his Holy Spirit. 
hand, with hands that we, that we cannot see, not physical hands, that he would stir our hearts, that he would move within us so that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus, they might be ready to surrender their life to him today. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would move in our hearts. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you by faith, who's never submitted their life to you, who's never received by faith that gift that you gave so graciously, so freely, Lord, then I pray that today, even in this moment, they might surrender their life to you, that they might come to you in faith. And so move in our hearts, move especially, Lord, in the hearts of those that don't know you. Jesus, we look to you today, believing in faith that you gave your life as payment for our sin and you rose victoriously from the grave so that we might be forgiven and set free and receive eternal life from you. God, we praise you and now we even offer our lives to you as our worship. All this we pray in your name. Amen. So we stand.